So uh, our topic this evening is the church in the nations. Uh, And as you can see from your uh, beautiful handout, uh, we're going to begin by looking uh, in relation to Jesus, uh, then some characteristics uh, of the life of the early church, and then some of the challenges, which I will only really sketch, but uh, some of the challenges as regards the nation in the history uh, of the church, and then also some thinking about how churches and nations interact today. So um, I make no apology that there aren't uh, kind of direct ways in which this necessarily impacts each of us directly uh, all the way through this evening. But I do hope that there will be moments when particularly as we realise some of the things Jesus is saying to us about what the church should be like. There will be things for each of us to reflect on, you know, in terms of what it is for us to be part uh, of the body of Christ together. So, let's begin. Uh, Jesus, in his life, I think it's worth saying, is somewhat ambiguous about the notion of how the church might relate to the nation. Um, In his life, of course, he is seen as a threat to the nation. So in John chapter 11, then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting uh, together. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So that's uh, John eleven forty seven. following. Um, there is a very visceral fear about who Jesus is and what he is doing in relation to the safety and security of the nation as we have it now uh, and as we understand it. And of course, that is quite a difficult thing, particularly if you've been born and brought up in the UK, to sort of think your way into, because of course, we now live in a very different, though equally turbulent, uh, you might argue, place in relation to the place of religion vis-a-vis the place of the state. And we will get on to thinking uh, about that. I suppose another way in which Jesus is uh, ambiguous about any appeal to any specific nation is that he is always so clear that his hope is for all nations. And therefore, there's a kind of contrast between so much of the story of the people of God through the Old Testament is about the particular story of the nation of Israel, uh, and then Jesus, of course, being the fulfillment of the destiny of the nation of Israel as the Messiah. But that's not where his teaching stops. He then is offering hope for all nations. But this comes to light in a curious uh, story in Matthew 15, which I would um, encourage you to, to turn to. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Um, it's always good to get a mistake on the handout in early, I feel. But it's uh, Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Um, the faith of a Canaanite woman. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity, this means that she is not a Jew. She's a Gentile in a Gentile area. And she is crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, as he so infuriatingly often doesn't. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, and this is a very challenging response uh, and one that we need to, to think about quite carefully. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, one of the really interesting questions in terms of within the Gospels themselves, is how much does Jesus see his focus as the Messiah for Israel, and how much does he see his focus as being wider than that to the whole uh, of humanity? And here, it's almost as if we are given this tension before us right within this story, because the woman then comes and kneels down before him and is imploring to him, Lord... She acknowledges who he is. Lord, help me. 
And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Which, however easily you understand that or not, doesn't seem like the most sort of pastorally compassionate response, uh, as far as I can tell. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, and it's a moment of great drama, isn't it? I mean, the ITV 9pm drama would stop at that point, wouldn't it? And uh, wheel you in next week. You know, what would Jesus answer? And he says to her, Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed in that moment. And this is so significant because Jesus, within his earthly ministry, demonstrating that he is willing to heal not only the people of God, the Jews, but heal others as well. And so it's a really significant sign that this kingdom is not only for Israel, but is for others as well, which is, of course, then a theme later on in the New Testament that we see fleshed out very clearly. And of course, Jesus' followers, even if Jesus himself uh, spends more time with the Jews, arguably, his followers are commanded, uh, as we well know from the Great Commission, to go to all the nations. But he won't solve all the problems of the nations, uh, although there is no doubt that his followers are to be sent to all the nations. It's not as if they go to all the nations and the problems of the nations themselves are solved. Isn't this an interesting thing that the kingdom uh, advances individual by individual by individual? And arguably when someone like Constantine then, as it were, converts the Roman Empire, you get all sorts of unintended problems and consequences from that because Actually, Jesus' intention was, it seems to be life by life by life, that people would come uh, into the kingdom of God. Uh, and we'll think a little later about what it means for us being part of the Church of England with its certain kinds of state privileges, um, which, if we're honest, seem to be quite a long way away from the understanding of what this faith would look like uh, in the pages of the New Testament. So the followers um, are sent to all the nations, but listen to what Jesus says uh, in Matthew 24, verses 6 to 8, uh, and then verse 14. And you, you, know, you may want to think about the current state uh, of the world at the moment. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Now, I'm not going to do a great digression into whether we are now definitely living in the beginning of the end times. Um, throughout Christian history, that has not been a terribly fruitful uh, avenue to go down, uh, it seems to me. But nonetheless, simply looking at the sweep of history, even though we know much more these days because of telecommunications advances, uh, we do seem in the last 150 years or so to have been living through a time of shaking of the world's foundations, whether that's geopolitically uh, or environmentally or even socially, you might argue. Um, so that's a kind of interesting question that Jesus seems pretty confident, entirely confident, that at some point, as his return kind of looms on the horizon, actually the situation on earth will become considerably more difficult but see that you are not alarmed because his people are those with a faith which is bigger than even those temporal difficulties. And then verse 14, <clears throat> and this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. 
I mean, it, it's not designed to have comic effects, this passage, but there is a, a kind of astonishing way in which Jesus is saying, well, these absolutely terrible, awful things uh, will happen, but then the gospel will be proclaimed through all the nations, and then the end will come. So in a sense, uh, it would be curious if we were yearning to live through this kind of period, but isn't it an interesting question, are we in our own hearts, in our own faith, resilient enough or ready enough to face what is being thrown at us? Now, many of you will have had these sorts of experiences, but just in the prism of your own life, you know, the things that you have gone through personally. But in a sense, what Christ is saying is prior to his, his return, this is what the world uh, as a whole will face. So although he is promising good news to every nation on earth, it is good news which comes with a bit of a twist because as that proclamation uh, advances, so his return uh, comes closer. So how on earth do we live in the midst of this uh, and not knowing when that time will come. Uh, and here, Jesus is rather more uh, emphatic uh, and clear, and two passages which may well be uh, familiar to you. Uh, firstly, uh, where in Matthew 22, we are to render to Caesar or to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. So Christians are not to kind of uh, extract themselves from uh, tax and spend, fiscal policy, this kind of thing. You know, we are still to uh, engage with the world in that way. And then also, interestingly, the beginning of Romans 13, which is perhaps a more, um, even more challenging text, um, the notion of being subject to the governing authorities. Um, I was sort of flicking a little through Twitter uh, this afternoon, and uh, you know, I think it's fair to say there are quite a lot of people in our nation at the moment who are not terribly keen on the idea of being subject to the governing authorities. And you might well say, well, what about the Bonhoeffer test? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was an extraordinary Christian theologian in the rise of Nazi Germany and who ended up being part of a plot to kill Hitler, even though he saw that that was a great evil, but he felt that the evil that was being perpetrated was even greater and therefore he had no choice but in conscience to stand up. And of course, this is where the challenge comes because where do you draw that line when the Bible is clear about the, the kind of core expectation that Christians will be civilly obedient, uh, as it were. But is there a moment uh, at which that becomes tested if the advance of the kingdom would otherwise be so far undermined? Uh, and, you know, if you're kind of scratching your head and grappling with that, well, of course, theologians through the ages uh, have done too. So we are in good company if we find ourselves wrestling with how far we kind of see that uh, applying. And, and you know, the, the surprising thing in a sense is that um, well-meaning Christians on both sides of the Brexit divide, for example, are wrestling with exactly those questions uh, literally as we speak. When is a leader so evil that uh, it is worth plotting to overthrow them, uh, essentially. So I wonder whether uh, on your tables you just want to chew over those uh, opening sections. It may just be that there was one particular uh, passage that you felt you just want to ask another question about or raise something or query something. We're just going to have a few minutes to talk about the role of Jesus uh, in the role of the nations, uh, and then we will come back together. So any particular passage which has tickled your fancy or raised a question for you, I really encourage you to be the first person confidently to say something around the table. Go. <laughs> Well, let us move on to uh, three, possibly more positively or less, uh, less confusingly, uh, three 
characteristics uh, of the church in relation to the nations. Um, as the church is formed, and as we read about that uh, in the context of the New Testament. Uh, and in particular, I just want to draw your attention to a verse which, in the context uh, of all the amazing things that are happening at Pentecost, could easily be uh, overlooked. Um, uh, or at least not seen as absolutely uh, at the heart of what's going on. Uh, Acts 2, chapter 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, it's interesting, of course, that uh, this is a Jewish festival, so uh, it is uh, all Jews who are here, but they are from a multiplicity of nations. And it's just important, I think, to be reminded of this international dimension absolutely built into the heart of Pentecost and built into the very foundations uh, of the building of the church. So if Pentecost arguably is the time that the church gets its kind of injection of spiritual oxygen, uh, which then continues to this day, how interesting that that is defined very clearly as a kind of international project. Um, and then, of course, those who aren't part of what was going on uh, in the room at the time from verse 7 uh, of chapter 2, uh, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents, blah, blah, blah. Um, both Jews and converts to Judaism Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? But so at the very uh, heart uh, of what is going on here is an appeal to every uh, nation under heaven, um, which I think is a really important part of recognising uh, particularly perhaps in a, in a church which has a particular value of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that this is an international appeal. And it's a great privilege, I guess, for us to be uh, in a city that draws the whole world uh, to itself, either people studying or working or passing through uh, as tourists. And interestingly, uh, also, therefore, I mean, we are in a house of prayer for all nations. And of course, that is referring back to uh, Isaiah 56, 7, which Jesus himself references uh, repeatedly. Um, but again, when you think of a house of prayer for all nations, have you thought of that, as it were, politically? It's not uh, a house of prayer for the nations like us. Well, we know that us is always going to be uh, multinational uh, if the church is being what it really should be. So the kind of the notion of a cosy club of the like-minded is completely demolished from the starting point. But also um, a house of prayer for all nations, not just the nations that I like or I feel in sympathy with, not just the nations that have heard the gospel to the extent that my nation might or might not have done, but a house of prayer for all nations. So in a sense, there is this kind of radical uh, diversity and radical oneness in this experience of becoming part of this thing called the church, where whatever the particular experience of your nation you are fully welcomed as part of this faith which offers an equality of appeal to all nations. And of course then there are, there are the kind of almost amusing uh, aspects of that where you know, people in England or America have to sort of realise at some point in their childhood that perhaps Jesus wasn't white after all. Or, uh, you know, or I remember the first time uh, I went to China and seeing um, Asian uh, Madonna and child postcards that you could take home with you uh, for reasons of saying, you know, this, this saviour is for us just as much as it is for them, as it were. And uh, that is a really important point, I think, in relation to the church and the nations, because even if there are, as we will see, particular 
nations which have then developed national churches or places that have become particular centres for uh, the church or a concentration of Christians. Actually, as far as the Bible is concerned, the appeal is to every nation uh, on the earth. And that, of course, is what then motivates, uh, as we'll be reminded of, uh, missionary activity to uh, every nation. Thirdly, in this section, um, I'd like us to look at together uh, Colossians chapter 1, and this really wonderfully rich uh, passage, which is so key in linking the person of Jesus Christ to the ministry of the church. So I'm going to read uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I mean, this is completely astonishing, isn't it? This is completely mind-blowing to think that all things are ultimately under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, we'll see later that this philosophically almost, is pretty kind of, you know, head-exploding kind of stuff. But this is, this is the heart of the audacious kind of claims that Christianity makes. Um, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and... If that were not enough, he is the head of the body, the church. And that is such an important link for us to make, particularly if we're someone who has been wounded by the church or hates the church or really wishes the church was so much more like this rather than that or anything like that, to be reminded that the church, with all its failings and flaws, is Jesus's idea of how his ministry and mission might be carried out in earth prior to his return. And that's really, uh, again, a big kind of philosophical hurdle for some of us to uh, negotiate. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ. So there's also sort of crucial Trinitarian theology going on here as well. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I mean, it is the most extraordinary passage, isn't it? Because it relates the person of Jesus to the action of the Father, to the atoning work on the cross, to the life of the church in the here and now. And I don't know about you, but I'm not always able to kind of leap out of bed in the morning and make those kinds of marvellous theological connections, still less to then animate me, uh, you know, living my Christian life. Um, But that is what's going on here. That's what uh, Colossians is really encouraging us into, to see that um, church and Jesus are not or should not be wildly separated because at the head is never, you know, your local vicar or your pastor or the bishop or the local superintendent or whatever it might be, or even the Pope or, you know, whatever. There is no tier of human authority higher than the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, as we sang uh, at the beginning, then if you begin to actually explore the sheer power of that name, uh, you know, it's, it's an incredible journey to, to go on. And it's a journey which absolutely connects with the life uh, of the church. That is one of my favourite passages in the whole Bible, it should be said. Um, But, uh, you know, I think think it's a, a passage to enjoy for good reason. The trouble is that through 2,000 years of church history, 
The church has not always covered itself in glory, shall we say, in terms of living out these sorts of visions uh, of what the church might look like. Uh, And I'm sure you will have kind of particular examples that you can uh, think of. But um, firstly, just to mention in passing that, of course, nationhood as a concept uh, is much more a theme in the Old Testament than in than in the New Testament. And so when churches have kind of focused on a kind of chosen nation sort of theology, it it always ends up ringing a bit hollow, doesn't it? Because, well, what about that other nation, you know, over the sea or across the border, uh, who, as far as what we've already been saying, are also valued and uh, also a place worthy of the receipt of the gospel. So, This nation, I think, is sadly particularly guilty of that. If you think of, I had a moment of thinking I would play a verse of the hymn Jerusalem to you, you know, and did those feet in ancient time, you know, England's new Jerusalem, uh, William Blake's mystical and not terribly theological poetry, um, and yet, you know, beloved at state occasions, uh, or possibly even worse, I vow to thee my country, all earthly things above, you know, sung at rugby grounds and royal weddings and, you know, plenty of places as well. Um, But really, songs of national pride much more than songs of um, joyful submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, shall we say. Uh, So these are real challenges when churches then kind of misread what the Bible actually seems to be saying uh, about the nation. Uh, I'm not going to focus on them, but you know, Revelation uh, chapters two and three is full of those delicious letters to the churches where you know you can't read all the way through them without sort of feeling some pang of guilt of association with some church that you've been part of uh, once or twice. But um, if we can just look at Revelation 3, 15 to 16, uh, only because I think this was written um, anticipating certain parts of our own beloved Church of England. Um, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I mean, isn't it amazing that the Bible is full of such extraordinary, rich uh, language? But what it seems to be is about desperately trying to rest the church back to being faithful to its origins. And if the church ends up being a kind of sort of vanilla experience with no kind of challenge, neither hot nor cold, then we're doing something wrong. Um, I think it's fair to say that we try pretty hard at St. Aldate's not to be offering a kind of vanilla experience, uh, apart from the farrow and ball paint uh, going up on the church walls um, uh, as, we, as we speak. But um, vanilla probably isn't the, wor- the word to describe that, is it? Probably has a, you know, farrow and ball paint names are generally more descriptive, aren't they? Anyway, that's um, an unhelpful aside. Um, I got a nod from Mark at that moment, so I'll move on. Um, So, um, back to the the handout, three, number three. The challenge, it says here of, I was going for it here, wasn't I? The challenge of ecclesial nationalism and the pursuit of temporal power. But think of things like the Crusades, uh, hardly an era of Christian history without complication. and indeed the whole kind of medieval power uh, of the church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, in literally lording it over great parts uh, of Europe, and then the impact of the Reformation on that, chipping away uh, at a lot of those injustices, but not removing them all by any means. Uh, And of course, One of the curious uh, aspects of the legacy of the Reformation is the quite strong emergence, particularly in Northern Europe, of national churches, of which uh, ours probably has the most dubious of foundations uh, in relation to Henry VIII uh, and divorce. Um, You know, the Anglican Church does not have a kind of straightforward birth. I mean, the Book of Common Prayer gives it a bit more kind of ballast, uh, you know, as time goes on. But, um, you know, these are not the circumstances in which you would ideally plant a church, are they? Um, 
but that is where the, the Church of England has started. But also, if you look across Northern Europe, uh, many of those national churches, uh, I mean, talk to Nina, for example, in terms of you know, your own uh, experiences of some of the Northern European churches, um, are now facing grave, grave challenges in terms of, uh, in a sense, simply capitulating to the will of the state uh, on various issues. The fact that in a country like Germany, still most people pay a church tax, which seems extraordinary in this country. Many historic churches, of course, would love the idea of a church tax, but actually when you think it through, it can terribly undermine the ability of the church to uh, witness freely uh, and without uh, a kind of inherent transactional nature uh, for people. Which kind of tees us up uh, to think about the church today. But I wonder uh, if you would like on your tables just to turn back to that passage from Colossians uh, chapter 1 uh, and spend five minutes or so just chewing it over together, and if there are any particular aspects of that theological manifesto, uh, if you like, either that you find troubling or challenging, or that you just want to delight in as well, or perhaps there is a connection in that passage that you hadn't made before. Um, it may be very simply this connection between Jesus and the church that you want to talk about. Uh, it may be that there are aspects of that that you want to delve into. But let's look at uh, Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 20, just for a few moments together. Thanks. Okay, well, I can hear deep philosophical conversations going on all around the room, so I'm very sorry to interrupt them. Though I'm not that sorry because uh, we all have homes to go to. Um, okay, I'm going to carry on then with section four, the church and the nation today. Uh, and in a sense, I hope that what you've got a sense of already is that there is one thing that is completely unambiguous, and that is that the Christian appeal is to every nation without exception. Uh, and the Christian appeal does not favour a particular nation. So whereas, as I've said, the Old Testament is very much about the story of the nation of Israel, the preferred sort of favoured status of the nation of Israel continues to be cherished, but is no longer the exclusive story of what God uh, is about. This is now good news for the whole world. But what it means is that because no humans are living their Christian life perfectly uh, and nations are of course subject to principalities and powers as much as uh, the impact of the work uh, of the church. There is a, a tension and tussle going on uh, in every nation and therefore uh, the outworking of this is complicated. And so I've just got some sort of bullet points, really, all things that we could, uh, many of them, spend whole evenings on, not least the first, which is the, the sheer fact of the persecution uh, of the church in today's world. And there are so many things that we could say about this, so many nations that we could draw uh, attention to. But just think for a moment, if you were looking at Christianity with no prior understanding whatsoever, isn't it remarkable that seemingly the more pressure you place, the more restrictions you place uh, on Christians, the more that this faith thrives, even if it's sent underground, even if it has no hint of political power, uh, even if merely owning a Bible or meeting with other Christians uh, is uh, against the law. Nonetheless, this faith, because it is real and true, and because the presence of God can be felt just as much in a Chinese basement as it can uh, in a beautiful house of prayer like this, because that is true, therefore this faith is propelled uh, around the world. And of course, people died for their faith from the very beginning 
uh, and they continue even to die for their faith today. Um, if you're not aware of it, I do encourage you to become aware of the Foreign Office-sponsored uh, review uh, into the persecuted church, um, which of itself uh, is a really interesting example uh, of the ambiguity that we live within this country, because often we'll complain about the established church or bishops in the House of Lords don't really seem to do very much. But then suddenly, almost miraculously, uh, remember that man, Jeremy Hunt, who was the Foreign Secretary, Let's not go there. Anyway, uh, of, you know, he um, amazingly uh, has quite a strong Christian faith, it seems, uh, and commissioned this review and commissioned an Anglican bishop to undertake the review, a man called um, Philip Mount Stephen, who was until recently based in Oxford uh, as the head of the Church Mission Society, uh, which has its headquarters in Oxford. Um, and it, it's quite remarkable some of the things Jeremy Hunt even spoke kind of publicly at the launch of this report. Um, so he pointed out the number of countries where Christians suffer because of their faith rose from 128 in 2015 to 144 just one year later. In the Middle East, he said, the very survival of Christianity as a living religion is in doubt. And although this this feels a more kind of um, niche thing to, to mention, but he also said this, for too long, governments have preferred the vague language of general condemnation rather than face the specific problem of anti-Christian discrimination and persecution. Now, it is quite remarkable to hear uh, a political leader in 2019 say that actually the world should be noticing not just anti-religious discrimination in general, but anti-Christian discrimination and persecution in particular. Uh, and Bishop Philip Mount Stephen pointed out that if one minority is on the receiving end of 80% of religiously motivated discrimination, it is simply not just that they should receive so little attention. And of course, this speaks into a world and perhaps a kind of media culture in particular that, that is constantly seeking to offer a kind of equivalence uh, of one religion to another. But as we are seeing this evening, you know, our faith is founded uh, on, on unique claims and actually the evidence is that Christians in today's world are uniquely disproportionately persecuted for their faith. The church and the nation today, uh, though, has this kind of potentially compromised uh, role in various nations, whether it's uh, in Russia. Did you hear recently about um, the Russian Orthodox Church deciding that perhaps they would stop blessing nuclear warheads? Normally, a Russian Orthodox priest goes and blesses uh, a new nuclear warhead. I mean, we'd laugh if it weren't so awful. Um, but, uh, but they're thinking of stopping that, so that, that I think counts as progress. Um, obviously, here in the Church of England, we have all sorts of challenges posed by our particular constitutional roles, which may or may not be a great idea. Um, uh, and as I've mentioned, countries like uh, Sweden and other uh, Scandinavian uh, countries um, uh, have other associated challenges with being uh, part of the state furniture, if you like. Um, but I wanted to draw your attention to some words of Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, yesterday, you may, I mean, it, it's almost like old news uh, now, but yesterday uh, he was asked formally to chair a citizens forum uh, on Brexit. Um, and this is some of the, the, these are some of the words he offered in response to this, um, you know, pretty, uh, well, he says, unexpected invitation. It is an unexpected privilege to be asked to chair this proposed citizens forum on Brexit. In the past, this kind of gathering has, in many places and in difficult situations, opened the way for careful deliberation if at the right time and genuinely representative. He goes on, Jesus Christ is the source of reconciliation and healing for individuals and society, full stop. 
Now, isn't it amazing? It's so easy, isn't it, for us just to kind of rail against, you know, these bishops in their strange regalia, you know, wafting into the House of Lords and, you know, having their nice free meal and their subsidised gin and tonic or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, in response to an invitation from the great and the good to sort of chair this particular thing, he then has this opportunity to state something which so often in our culture we would think is kind of unsayable, and yet there he is saying it. And I'm not saying that which is better or worse and whether it would in the end be better if we were to, you know, disestablish. I'm not speaking anti-disestablishmentarianistically. Sorry, I just had to, I just, I'd been <laughs> mulling over that silliness uh, earlier. Sorry, please forgive me. Um, uh, anyway, um, the point is that uh, he says this amazing uh, thing, and then he goes on, it is obviously right that among many others, the churches should contribute to the emergence of a dynamic and united country post-Brexit. I mean, he sounds a bit political when he says a dynamic country there, doesn't he? But um, however it may be achieved, every one of us must play the part they can in this task. And buried within that, he's saying it's obviously right that among many others, the churches should contribute. He's kind of convening a space, but actually affirming that the churches do have a distinctive role to play. Now, arguably, that is a place of privilege of a sort that Jesus didn't particularly have in mind. Jesus probably didn't have in mind Henry VIII's scale of marital infidelity or the temporal richness of the papacy or you know, various other things as well. Um, we are where we are, and the question is, what does a, a faithful response look like? Um, but we live with this tension in our own nation, in our own denomination uh, in this respect. You might say that Catholicism is a kind of uniquely intriguing and subversive uh, example here. Um, uh, here is a picture of the Pope addressing uh, a brand new kind of department of the Catholic Church, all to do with Holy Spirit renewal, believe it or not. Um, so this is the commissioning of a new international renewal movement uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, and the Pope said on this occasion that all of these people and this whole kind of organisation is uh, committed to three things. The first is to share baptism in the Holy Spirit with everyone in the church. It is the grace you have received. Share it. Don't keep it to yourselves. Which I think is, is amazing. And it's really interesting, this organisation, uh, everyone who's listed, it kind of gives their year of birth and then also their year of baptism in the Spirit. I mean, now I know the concept of baptism in the Spirit. Some of us might say we think more just of a kind of absolute infilling with the Holy Spirit. But I wonder how many of us would actually say, on my kind of life story, that's the moment that I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I was baptised in the Holy Spirit. And then, what does it mean for me to share that good news within the context of the Christian faith with others. So he says there are three things they should be about. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, unity in the body of Christ, and service to the poor are the forms of witness that by virtue of baptism, all of us are called to give for the evangelization of the world. Really interesting. Really interesting how the Catholic Church then has this kind of national reach, and even the Vatican exists as a nation state, which is really bizarre. It's the tiniest nation on earth, virtually, um, or perhaps actually, I'm not quite sure, but it's geographically absolutely tiny, and yet has decided that by calling itself a nation still, it's worth it because you get to be at the United Nations or in this kind of dialogue with nations as well as with churches. Again, I'm not saying whether that's a brilliant idea, but I'm saying, isn't it interesting how churches all over the world are having to grapple with how they relate to the nation? 
And of course, it's not only the Catholic Church that does that, perhaps particularly the, the growth of Pentecostalism as a kind of global phenomenon, but so many networks are the way that actually the body of Christ operates. And you might think uh, of so many faith-based NGOs, so many organisations which take the love of Christ out to the nations. Uh, and secular NGOs are often very... Um, jealous, really, uh, of the way in which faith-based NGOs, church NGOs, can access the very heart uh, of a given community and reach, you know, the, the kind of real people that NGOs are always desperate to actually be reaching. Because, you know, if you find a church leader anywhere in the world, they will know just people in that local community, because that's, that's what the church is. And so, these networks have incredible potential. And of course, when it comes to mission, to the, the bread and butter of Christians living out the Great Commission, that remains an international call. And uh, in the two and a bit years I've been at St. Aldate's, I've been really humbled to see the number of people wrestling with and then being sent out uh, on calls all around the world, you know, um, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a deeply humbling thing. You know, I get called to the harsh wastelands of Oxford, you know, as they're called to wherever it, you know. But I mean, it, it's, a, it's something that I, you know, all of us have to kind of think seriously about. The, the astonishing nature of this call to the nations when there are so many who still have not yet heard or cannot access the Bible uh, in their mother tongue. Uh, and therefore, the way in which that, that for some of us will weigh heavily uh, on our hearts because God brings a particular people group or a particular place uh, into our consciousness. Just almost finally, uh, on your sheet, it says from 1950s Oxford to today. Um, I just want to compare with you uh, the, the blurbs about two books. The first is the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, slaved over in this city since 1957, which uh, the preface in 1957 said this, the Christian church has been so closely interwoven with the course of Western civilization that her history, life, and institutions are matters of deep concern, not only to those who, through holy baptism, have been admitted to membership in the body of Christ, but to all who take an intelligent interest in contemporary culture. Here, a very confident sense of civilization and the church, kind of hand in hand. I think we may want to perhaps nuance that, and I dare say subsequent editions have perhaps nuanced that a little. But nonetheless, what this dictionary uh, is doing is taking very seriously the impact, perhaps the unwitting impact, that the church has had on the life uh, of nations well beyond the simple life uh, of the churches themselves. But I also want to draw your attention to this new book by uh, Tom Holland, which is coming out uh, literally any day now, called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Uh, and this is the blurb for that. And think about this being written for our country, for our context. Think of the many people that you probably know who are quietly or loudly dismissive uh, of your Christian faith, uh, if you're sitting here as a Christian uh, this evening. Tom Holland says, Christianity is the most enduring and influential legacy of the ancient world. That's quite a claim, isn't it? The most enduring and influential legacy of the ancient world. And its emergence the single most transformative development in Western history. Even the increasing number in the West today who have abandoned the faith of their forebears and dismiss all religion as pointless superstition remain recognizably its heirs. All of us are kind of descended from this, whether we recognize it or like it or not. Seen close up, the division between a skeptic and a believer may seem unbridgeable, 
widen the focus, though, and Christianity's enduring impact upon the West can be seen in the emergence of much that has traditionally been cast as its nemesis in science, in secularism, and yes, even in atheism. And I'm told that this is a kind of tour de force uh, in relation to <clears throat> making sense of these Christian roots that we have, uh, even if we are less keen to talk about them today. The cover of the US version of the same book uh, and the subtitle is kind of intriguing and tells its own story about the church and the nation and how you have to play these things in different places. So the American version has a much more obviously Christian cover, Dali's Christ uh, on the Cross and Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world. So how interesting that uh, <clears throat> if you're buying this book in America, it's Christian and it remade the whole world. If you're buying it in Britain, it's the making of the Western mind. Same text, but the, uh, the story is kind of teased in a very different way. And I think there is something, <clears throat> excuse me, quite um, sort of indicative about that. So, <clears throat> I want to leave you with these final two quotes which are on your sheet which are, you know, a little testing but provocative and ones which I, I suppose I encourage you to kind of take away, pin on your fridge, mull over. Not everyone might want to pin them on their fridge, but, you know. So the um, ethicist Stanley Havas says this, the church is constituted as a new people who have been gathered from the nations to remind the world that we are in fact one people. Think of the world of identity politics that we live in. Think of the way in which we seem constantly to be emphasizing difference. And yet actually, is it not at the very heart of the gospel that we are one in Christ? We are one as part of one body. We may look and sound different, but we are inherently joined together. And that is something that we offer to the world. And then this longer quote by the amazing theologian and commentator, really, Leslie Newbegin. Uh, and this is challenging. This is really challenging. And in a sense, he's picking up some of the challenge of that Colossians 1 passage, because really what he's saying is, are you willing to join the dots of Christian faith and live out the implications or not. And he's, you know, he's, he's being challenging. So this is what he says. Christians can never seek refuge in a ghetto where their faith is not proclaimed as public truth for all. Because if this stuff in the Bible is true, it is actually true for everyone, even the people who say it's definitely not true for me, uh, or the, you know, the people who are just disinterested. They can never agree, Christians can never agree that there is one law for themselves and another for the world. They can never admit that there are areas of life where the writ of Christ does not run. They can never accept that there are orders of creation or powers or dominions that exist otherwise than to serve Christ. This is the heart of this challenge from Colossians 1, isn't it? Whatever the institutional relationship between the church and the state, and there are many possible relationships, no one of which is necessarily the right one for all times and places, the church can never cease to remind governments that they are under the rule of Christ and that he alone is the judge of all they do. Now, I don't know what Justin Welby says in his private audiences, you know, with, presumably he will have one with uh, Boris Johnson. He certainly had them with Theresa May. It's a question, isn't it, as to whether the church really is holding our nation to account? Or does this just seem so ludicrous, such an extraordinary claim for Christians to make that we stop making it altogether? And yet, 
it's a pretty ludicrous start to a world-changing faith, isn't it? A few people left by what they uh, thought was not an empty tomb until the miracle of the resurrection uh, and the life which followed and Pentecost underlining that this was good news for every nation and somehow this Holy Spirit motivating people to go to every nation uh, on earth and in some places making beautiful historic palaces like this one uh, and in others seeing this same truth continue to grow uh, and develop even in places where to build uh, a church would be unthinkable. And so what are the implications for the nation uh, and indeed for our nation? I know that there aren't uh, huge numbers of vast, easy answers uh, on this, but I hope that that gives you a kind of tour of some of the horizon, as it were, in relation to some of the complexity, but also the firm claims which Christianity makes. They are completely audacious and they might blow your mind. Um, but that's the whole point in a sense, is it not? Uh, shall we stand and reflect in prayer? I think Jamie is going to come and just lead us in one song. We'll be done in 10 minutes. And I realise that a lot of what we've been talking about may feel distant from your own experience, but actually the church is not distant from your experience because by virtue of being here tonight, you are part of it. By the way, if you're here tonight and you haven't been baptised, please do come and chat because... As Charlie R. Rector says, you know, never leave Oxford without getting baptised. But baptism, of course, is the formal way of saying, yes, this is my family. I am part of the church, though you are welcome and part of the family, uh, even without that formal marker. But by virtue of baptism, you are part of the church, and therefore you are part of this wrestling with how to relate to the nation. So let's pray together. Lord, many of us may not need to spend days or weeks or months of our lives thinking about these things, but we don't want to be uh, naive to the challenges that your church as a whole faces as it seeks to be faithful in its ministry and its witness, whether that's in places in recent history of great ease of public worship like this country, uh, or in places of great repression or restriction or persecution. And Lord, we stand before you as those who represent many different nations on earth. We hold before you the nations of our families, we hold before you nations dear to us. We pray for St Aldate's as a house of prayer for all nations and a house of prayer that welcomes those from all nations. And Lord, we acknowledge that none of this would have happened, none of this extraordinary story of the growth of the church in every nation on earth without you, without your son, Jesus Christ, showing us the way and without him sending his Holy Spirit to empower your church. But of course, that just means you empowering us as individuals one by one. So come, Holy Spirit, would you show us what it is for us as individuals to build your church so the gates of hell will not prevail against it? What is it for each of us as individuals to build your kingdom 
among our friends, our families, our fellow students, our colleagues, those who we meet day by day in our everyday interactions. Would you help us to make these meaningful connections between these big national and international questions and our part in your body? Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Would you minister to us?